draw your attention this morning to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Could have chosen any number of paragraphs in Luke 1 and 2 or Matthew 1 and 2 as a text for the sermon I'm about to preach. The observation I wish to make this morning about the Christmas history is a feature of that history in every part. But these verses from Luke chapter 2, perhaps the most famous paragraph in the Bible, uh, serves my purpose as well, if not better than any other part of the history. So we begin to read with verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. It's a point of the greatest conceivable importance that the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ is as obviously and intentionally rooted in ordinary history as it is. These things happened when Augustus was the emperor, when Quirinius was the governor of that region of the empire. And so it will continue, indeed, to the end of the Bible, as it has been a feature of the biblical narrative from its beginning. These wonderful things happened in those days, during the time of those rulers, when these other things were happening in the world, and so on. Jesus died during the reign of Tiberius, during the governorship of Pontius Pilate, when Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest. These are all men known to history from other sources than the Bible. Whatever others may sometimes think or say, this is not mythology in any accepted sense of the word. The authors of the Gospels were writing what everyone understands to be an account of things that happened. History. People will make their judgments about whether these reports faithfully reproduce what happened, but there can be no mistaking the fact that the gospel writers intended their readers to understand that these events occurred in precisely the same way Augustus's imperial reign or Herod's governorship occurred. Christ's birth was a real event in the real world in the same way that taxes are real, and we all know how real taxes are. At that time, into the everyday world of that time, into its population, into its politics, into its social currents, came suddenly and unexpectedly from heaven this mighty and wonderful interruption. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We now know, as I've pointed out to you in Christmas sermons before, that that word inn should be translated rather room. It's the same word used for the upper room in Jerusalem where the Lord's supper would be held and what is meant is that there was no room in the main room of the house where the family slept and as a result they had to be in the other room of the house where the animals were brought in for the night. 
Nazareth was so small a village, it was very unlikely that there was an inn in a town that small, and almost no one had barns in those days. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us, the Lord. The shepherds instinctively realized the significance of this message that was spoken or sung by angels. God had spoken to them. God himself had addressed them. The Lord. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. In other words, they told Joseph and Mary everything the angels had said to them. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what is not only the extraordinary history narrated in these 20 verses, that it is indeed history of events that occurred in the everyday world. But we thank you, O God, that your word tells the story so beautifully, so memorably, in words that have been imprinted on the mind of the entire world and lighten the hearts of people, both believers and unbelievers alike. Who but God could do this? Who but the Holy Spirit could write such words, tell the story, in such a way. Now, O God, we pray that you would impress that history upon our hearts in a new and living way this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. One of the powers that dramatically separates human beings from all other creatures, and one of man's most stupendous powers, a power that makes possible so much in human life, is the power of imagination. We can visualize in our mind's eye other people, other places, other times. We can invent a world inside our heads. To be sure, we waste this power far too much of the time, daydreaming merely to entertain ourselves or to indulge our covetousness or to practice our pride. But so much of human creativity originates in the imagination. Einstein's Anus Mirabilis, the four papers that he published in 1905 that were to transform our understanding of mass and energy and space and time, were all born in his imagination. His mental visualizing of such things as a stationary light 
passing through the windows, the light of that stationary light source passing through the windows of a passing train. Most of the world's great inventions were first visualized in the mind before they were ever reduced to blueprints or to manufacturing specifications. Human imagination is often a window on the future, but it is just as often a window on the past. Imagination enables us to see what things were once like, how people once lived, who and what they were. By imagination, we can enter into the real story of human life, even those events that occurred long years before we were born. I'm not sure I understood what a gift the power of imagination actually is and how much it means to human life, in many ways how much it defines human life, until I began to encounter such power in the work of men who had been granted remarkable imaginations. C.S. Lewis's genius was to a significant degree the power of his imagination. The screw tape letters, for example, is as much the fruit of his ability to create a different world in his mind's eye as are the Narnia stories. His fascination with mythology was due in no small part to his ability to imagine, to see those fantastic worlds, to find himself within them. But it will come as no surprise to many of you that it was Alexander White who first taught me what imagination can add to understanding and sympathy. People who knew Dr. White and who sat under his preaching frequently recollected his imaginative power. He was, they said, a soul full of eyes. When he summed up a scene, either from the Bible or from human life, he made it vivid and startlingly authentic with his imaginative touches. In his sermon on prayer taken from the Lord's story of the man who knocked on his neighbor's door at midnight, we hear that the man comes back. He knocks again. Friend, he cries, until the dogs start barking at him. Till the dogs bark is an imaginative touch, but so lifelike. White could see the scene unfold and made his hearer see it as well. On describing an irreverent family at prayer, he enables us to hear their creaking chairs, their yawns and coughs, the conversation beginning before the amen is well and truly uttered. Not everyone has a powerful imagination. It is a gift, and like all of God's gifts, comes in varying degrees. The Christian philosopher Gordon Clark claimed to have neither images in his memory nor the ability to create mental pictures, a condition technically known as a fantasia. Brilliant as he was, he never progressed beyond an adolescent level of mental visualization. A colleague once asked him if it were true that he couldn't visualize his wife in his mind's eye. No, he said he could not. But thankfully, most of us have active imaginations. We can see all manner of things in our mind's eye. So this morning, I want us to put our imaginations to work in order to see the people who populate the Christmas history, really to see them as they were, to see them as the kind of people they were, their lives as the sort of lives they were. In that, we will come to appreciate aspects of this history that are often overlooked, 
but are of great importance. Imagination is particularly important when we read the biblical narrative scattered with all manner of characters as it is, because with few exceptions, we're rarely given much information about them. We would love to have a full biography of at least one of these people, but then the Bible would have to be a book far larger than it already is. And so it is and must be that we know just a little bit about Joseph. A bit more about Mary, but very little more. Indeed, almost nothing about the shepherds or the wise men. We know nothing of their stories, of their lives before or after the events that brought them to the attention of the world. In a moment, they came and went from the stage of history. And even in that moment, we see them only in a scene or two. Or to put it another way, we know quite a bit about the personal history of Augustus, comparatively little about Quirinius, but a good deal about Herod, the Roman client king of Judea. We read about these men in Roman materials, in the works of Josephus, their names appear on monuments, and so on. In two cases, they have cities named after them. Everyone in the Mediterranean world knew who Augustus was. And everybody in Judea knew who Quirinius and Herod were. But there are no biographies, no archival records, not even a mention in any first century writing of any of the individuals who figure so prominently in the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. Apart from this information given to us, such as it is, in the pages of the Word of God. They were nobodies. They appear on the stage for a moment, then they disappear. Most of them never to be heard from again. There are some 53 individuals mentioned in the Bible who are also mentioned in historical materials from the biblical, material, biblical period, but none of the heroes of the Christmas history are among them. Let's begin with Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was a rural priest. He lived in a village in the hill country of Judea. He didn't live in Jerusalem. On the occasion of Gabriel's appearance to him, he was serving in the temple because his division had rotated into service and he himself had been chosen by lot to offer incense. There were many priests. None was ever offered this honor twice. Many priests never had the privilege of offering incense. So it was an old man's lucky day. Had the angel not appeared, he would have gone home happy that at least once in his life he had been able to enter the holy place of the temple and burn incense in that sacred room. His wife was an older woman by this time as well. They were a dear couple, but unremarkable, like so many others in the church of God who have lived with the sorrow of having no children. They were godly people, representative of that holiness which in a time of spiritual deadness still always survives in the church of God. But nobody knew who these people were outside their village. They came to Jerusalem and they left for home, and no one in the capital was the wiser. Little people like them came and went from the capital all the time. Or consider Mary and Joseph, the stars in this drama, the two who get top billing in the cast of characters. They came from Nazareth, a village in Galilee so small and so inconsequential that it is not mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Apocrypha, in the writings of, Jude of Josephus, or in the Talmud. Indeed, had Jesus' parents 
not hailed from Nazareth, it is not unlikely that no one would ever have heard of this village. The modern city of Nazareth may very well exist today only because Jesus grew up there when it was a small village. Like its inhabitants, such villages came and went all the time in in the ancient world. Joseph was a tradesman. Whether it would be correct to call him a poor man is a question, but he certainly was not a man of means. When it came time for him to consecrate his firstborn son to the Lord in the temple, he qualified to offer the sacrifice of two cheap birds rather than the far more expensive lamb. Mary was his fiancée from the same small town, a maiden among the thousands of other Jewish maidens dreaming of a home and family of her own. No doubt, Joseph and Mary had no other plans but that of making a life together in Nazareth, raising their children, and waiting like the other faithful people of the land for the consolation of Israel. They belong most emphatically to that vast multitude of believing people of whom we would know absolutely nothing were it not for their having been chosen to participate in the incarnation of God. How inconsequential and unremarkable these people were is powerfully illustrated by how little attention the New Testament pays to them after the birth of Jesus. Jesus is several times identified in the Gospels as the son of Joseph. But otherwise, after the birth narratives themselves, Joseph is mentioned by name not once again in the New Testament. Apparently he died a comparatively young man, after he and Mary had a number of other children, because the silence of the Gospels concerning him is most naturally explained by the fact that by the time Jesus began his ministry, his father had already died. The fact that mention is made of Mary on several occasions in the Gospels makes that conclusion even more certain. She was a widow, and that accounts for her being mentioned, but not her husband. But the fact is, not much is made of Mary either. She appears on a few occasions during the ministry of the Lord Jesus, usually in a group of other women. But we're told nothing about her, nothing of her character, nothing of her personal relationship with her firstborn son. Only once are we told anything about what she thought of Jesus. She seems confused about him at one point, but no explanation for her confusion is supplied. She's mentioned in Acts 1, as being among the disciples in Jerusalem waiting for the descent of the Holy Spirit, but after that she is not so much as even mentioned in the rest of the New Testament. Other women, for example Priscilla, are mentioned several times, but not Mary. Despite the emphasis that would later be placed upon her, the New Testament itself makes nothing of Mary in its teaching of the Christian faith or the Christian life. Her great service was to bear the Savior of the world. Otherwise, she was and continued to be an ordinary, unremarkable, believing woman. As every other Christian, her life takes on its significance solely from her connection to Jesus Christ. And the same may be said of the shepherds. The Christmas narrative has cast such an aura of sanctity around this group of shepherds that we tend to idealize them and their occupation. We tend to think that the angels would, of course, have made their announcement to shepherds because nothing would have been so appropriately beautiful 
nor so fitting on a Christmas card than that bucolic scene on a hillside outside Bethlehem, men in robes with staffs sitting around a fire with cute sheep in the background. As a matter of fact, however, in Judea in those days, shepherds were not generally viewed in such a positive light. Their manner of life made strict religious observance difficult, if not impossible. Consequently, they were considered unclean by the more seriously religious. More than that, their occupation did not have a reputation for scrupulous honesty. These men were the forerunners of the so-called sinners who would fill up the Lord's congregations when he began to preach and who would hear him gladly when the upright folk found only reasons to criticize. In any case, these men too disappeared from history as quickly as they had appeared, first on the hillside outside Bethlehem and then shortly, literally just a few hours thereafter when they went to see the baby of whom they had been told. We haven't time to say much about the Magi, so-called wise men. They were no doubt the most prominent people who appear in this history, at least they would have been prominent in their homeland. But we know virtually nothing about them. We don't know their names. We don't know how many of them there were. The number three is derived from the gifts they brought, golds, frankincense, and myrrh. And once having worshipped the newborn king, they left for home never to be heard of again. Similar things might be said of Simeon and Anna, who greeted the Holy Family in the temple. What of Simeon? He was an old man when he saw the Lord as a baby in the temple. He was a good man, a faithful man. It could be said of Simeon what it can be said of every truly good man. His hopes in life would be fulfilled only by the coming of the Messiah. But if he had been a priest or a theologian, Luke would no doubt have told us. If, he'd occup- if he had occupied some prominent position in the government of Judea, no doubt that piece of information would have been given to us. Simeon was a common name among the Jews of that time. There are a number of other Simeons in the Bible, as you know. And like the other actors in this drama, as soon as Simeon comes on stage and speaks his line, his immortal lines, his immortal nunc dimittis, and his prophecy of the effect that the life of the Lord Jesus would have upon first his mother and then the people of Israel. I say after saying those lines, he quietly exited the stage, never to reappear. There is the data. There's nothing more. But now what can our imaginations do with the information we have been given? Some of you are familiar, most of you should be familiar with Giancarlo Minotti's operetta, Amal and the Night Visitors. Beautiful story, beautifully sung, about the three wise men following the star who stopped to spend the night with a poor Jewish widow and her crippled son, Amal. They were on their way to visit the newborn king, and as the story concludes, Amal goes with them. Beautiful as that operetta is, It isn't that sort of imagination I'm talking about. The idea isn't to make up stories. Instead, consider the shepherds. Here were men who saw what few men perhaps know human beings had ever seen before them, would ever see after them until the second coming of Christ. 
They heard one of them deliver the most astounding intelligence in their own language. And as I argued in a sermon some years ago, I think there's evidence to conclude that then they heard a company, a great multitude of angels, singing their glory to God in the highest, almost certainly to Handel's music. And they didn't just sit there in stunned amazement. They understood what had been said to them, and they hurried to witness the event for themselves. And sure enough, they found everything just as the angels said they would. And they must and did, we read in our text. They told Joseph and Mary what they had seen and heard. Can you see in your mind's eye the excited conversation between the shepherds and the holy family? These were some things Mary and Joseph had not yet been told. And they're being told by the angels through the shepherds. Back and forth, the conversation must have gone. When they next saw their wives and children, do you suppose that these men said nothing about what they had seen and heard? Would it have been possible to keep this to themselves? I doubt it ever occurred to them to think they should keep it to themselves. Such extraordinary news. That night must have changed those men profoundly. They must have spoken about what happened a hundred times and more through the course of their remaining lives. How could they not? And how do you suppose people responded to them when they told their story? They were shepherds, after all. Nobodies. Surely, a great many who heard them must have thought that if a king were to be born and angels were to announce his birth, the last people who would have received that announcement would have been a group of shepherds. Perhaps a modern equivalent would have been a group of used car salesmen, an occupation whose reputation, deserved or not, and I know very often not deserved, is not one of scrupulous integrity or honesty. But perhaps there were others who could not help themselves. They could not help but detect the absolute sincerity of these men as they described that wonderful night. They could see in their eyes and hear in their voices the amazement and the reverence and the thrill. And perhaps... They could see in the lives of these men that something wonderful must have happened to change them as it did. Do you not suppose that these men were curious in the months and years that followed? Was any of them still alive 30 years later when Jesus burst upon the scene? Did anyone put together his amazing works of supernatural power and his fabulous teaching with that wonderful night some 30 years before? And did it occur to anyone that the people who were flocking to hear Jesus of Nazareth and to see him were the same sort of ordinary people to whom the news of his birth had been announced years before? These are the fascinating questions a believing imagination can't help but ask. We may not be able to answer all of them with any confidence, but to ask them, is to take the history seriously, to see it in our mind's eye. Or think of Joseph and Mary themselves. It would be some time, we don't know precisely how long, before they returned to Nazareth. They were some time in Bethlehem after the baby's birth. Then the hurried trip to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous intentions. And after some time there, we don't know how long a time, 
the journey back to Galilee. But what did they tell their family, friends, and neighbors when they reached home? What a story they had to tell. The extraordinary things the angels had told first Mary and then Joseph about the baby in her womb. He would save his people from their sins, the angel told Joseph. He would be called the son of the Most High. He would someday sit on the throne of his father, David. His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, the angel had told Mary. He was a child conceived without a human father. Miracle of miracles. All of this meant, and they would have understood it to mean, that this baby was the long-promised Messiah. But he was not only the Christ, the Messiah. He was Christ the Lord. What did they understand that to mean when they first heard it? Could they have understood that the baby boy in Mary's arms was God in the flesh? No Jew in those days was expecting the Messiah to be both God and man. What did Jesus and Joseph understand Jesus to be? Or Joseph and Mary, what did they understand Jesus to be? As he grew up in their home, a child unlike any other, what did they think? What did they see, observe? They must have told their little boy many, many times, then their young adult son many more times about the fabulous events that had occurred at the time of his birth. He must have heard that story countless times. He must have asked his parents to tell it to him once again. And he would have been asking questions throughout their recital of those events. Surely they would not have kept, they could not have thought it right to keep the circumstances of his birth a secret from him. Then what did they say to the other children who gradually filled up the home, the Lord's brothers and sisters? We know that they didn't believe in him during the days of his ministry. The gospel writers tell us that. They would later, but they did not then. As they became young adults themselves, what did they think of the stories that their parents had told them of those long ago days? Did they love and admire their brother? Did they think him strange? How did Joseph's death affect Jesus and his siblings. In those days, even more than our own, the paterfamilias imposed a character on his household. And everything we know about Joseph, admittedly not very much, but everything we know suggests he was a godly man, a holy man. Did his absence from the family circle create a less wholesome atmosphere in that home? Was it a burden that Mary was not entirely capable of bearing? We don't know, of course. But again, to ask these questions, to strive to see in our mind's eye the unfolding history of these people whom we meet in the Christmas narrative is to take this history seriously. It is to treat it as an account of real people in the real world upon whom descended most utterly unexpectedly the fulfillment of the ages. What about the Magi? No doubt they had a story to tell when they got home, and no doubt they told it. But what did they understand? What was the explanation they gave to their king, to their families, to their neighbors? How much did they understand of what Joseph and Mary had told them? Did they ever meet any of the shepherds and talk to them? What was the result of that first announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Gentile world? 
It was the foretaste of things to come, to be sure, of Pentecost before Pentecost. Wouldn't you love to learn that one of the shepherds, now an older man, those 30 years later, was alive to hear an early report of the amazing ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And remembering that name, and perhaps that Joseph and Mary had hailed from Nazareth, excitedly traveled to find him and see him and listen to him. And wouldn't it be wonderful to learn that he had introduced himself to Jesus and explained to the Lord who he was and told him about that wonderful night outside of Bethlehem, the night he had been born. That surely would have been an immense encouragement to Jesus himself to hear from another eyewitness the astonishing history of his birth. Remember, it would be the nobodies, in largest part, who responded in faith and love to Jesus Christ during his own ministry. The high and the mighty were as uninterested in his ministry as they had been oblivious to his birth. And the Apostle Paul famously reminds us in 1 Corinthians that when the gospel began its march of conquest through the Gentile world, only here and there did it ever capture the hearts of the great and the powerful. It was the ordinary people, people like you and I, who believed in and followed the Lord Jesus. And so it has been ever since. As Jesus once memorably put it, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But we small fry are not as distracted by the enticements of this world, the glitter, the celebrity, the adulation of others. As it was in the first century, so it was in the 20th, so it will be throughout the 21st. Simone Weil, the brilliant French woman, Marxist, atheist who became a follower of Jesus Christ later in her life, put it this way. Christianity is preeminently the religion of slaves. Slaves cannot help belonging to it, and I among them. Why is that? Because shepherds and tradesmen and poor housewives know that there is, that there must be more to life than what we see in this world. The rich and the powerful and the famous are hard-pressed to believe that. And so a recent biographer of St. Patrick notes that Patrick's faith and preaching found its warmest reception in Ireland among those, he says, on the fringes of society. The indifference, the outright hostility to the incarnate Son of God among the great people of this world has been a theme of human history ever since. A 19th century theologian wrote a book in defense of Christianity with the title On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. And a book of that title could have been written in every age of the Christian church. And it could be written today. But then Augustus and Quirinius and Herod were not informed about the greatest thing that had ever happened that privilege fell to the little people. Here's why we ought to invest our imagination in thinking about these people who populate the drama of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. They're our sort of people. We can see ourselves in them. 
we can place ourselves back in that history. We can see it in all of its wonder and its life-changing power and all of its promise for that life that is worthy to be called life. We weren't there, but they were. But we can also see the challenges they faced, the hard work it must have been to hold in their hearts as a living power their recollection of what they had seen and heard years before when nothing else happened for years thereafter. That's our calling too. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.